Hey, 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 welcome back to When Songs Mean Business. I'm your host, Steph Belcher, and today's episode is very special to me. It's my first episode with a guest, my dear friend and fellow educator, Audra Kubat. Audra is a beautiful light in the world who inspires her students to share their souls through music and art, and I am so grateful to her for all the wisdom she has shared with me over the years and for being my very first interview on this podcast. In this episode, we discuss her current project, the Detroit House of Music, and the steps she has taken to build community in her Detroit neighborhood. We talk about her songwriting collaboration with the Detroit Institute of Art, how she got started in music, and what it was like for her to grow up in Detroit. We talk about her songwriting process, struggles that she has in business, and so much more. All the music you'll hear in this episode is written and performed by Audra, and you can find it on all streaming services or her Bandcamp page. Check the show notes for links. All right, let's dive in to When Songs Mean Business. Hi. Hi. You're my very first guest. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it feels appropriate. Yeah, for sure. I feel like we've kind of been on this journey together, so to speak, and coming and going a little bit. Time to get back to that journey. Yeah. So what have you been up to? Well, during sort of the downtime, I call it the downtime. Yeah. Uh, I had a chance to breathe and I hadn't oh. breathed in like, you know, I felt like 25 years. Yeah. <laughs> My first sort of like waiting tables job when I was like 16, I've just been <laughs> So, you know, I was really blessed that, that I was able to get support as a gig worker. I mean, it took Good. a while, but, you know, we get some support, money that I had been putting into the system since I was 16. Yeah. And I've been working on Detroit House of Music, this house for, it probably was already two years in, and the process was really, really slow and just, you know, so much demo and so much work starting in this house. It was built in 1884, so it's really- Wow. It had gone through like a ton of different transformations, and the last one was sort of like a halfway house slash brothel all these tiny rooms. It was just like a crazy amount of work. And this downtime, really, I kind of just went headfirst into like sort of a pioneer-esque like lifestyle here. I moved out of my place because I couldn't really afford to pay rent there and also be working here. So I moved in without, there was like no plumbing yet and no electricity and no heat. About a year and a half later, I have electricity. The heat system is still in flux, but I got, I had a wood burning stove, which actually you, you can see. Oh, cool. Find me that I got through last winter, mostly with that. And um, yeah, so this year we are hoping to finish the heat. So the first floor is done. We're doing like a radiant heat floor thing, but cool. So- You know, I've been really doing a lot of work in the house. I have like sort of been shying away from, I don't know, getting back to it, I guess. Like, I feel like during this time, I've sort of realized I'm more of an introvert than I thought. I really like my, you know, my home time. And, you know, I've still been writing a lot and creating. I finished a track that I had a wonderful Detroit poet, Jessica Caramore, join me on about racial justice in February, I think February of this year, called Grey Glory Parade. And so, and I've been writing and, you know, continue to sort of do stuff and, you know, still have the dream, the dream, (laughs) you know, um, a coveted artist that 
gets to go around and people want to hear my songs. I have this song I'm actually working on. It's called After the Apocalypse, Musicians Will Be Kings. And it's kind of like a punk song. So I love it. Departure for me, but it's 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 going to really poke at that, you know, sort of that idea. Like, number one, at the end of times when the radios don't work and there's no way to sort of listen to music, there's no electricity, you know, there's just that we as musicians, we will finally get our just due. Like we will walk into the camp with our guitar, yeah. bow down to us like we are gods and we'll feed us and they'll clothe us and they will cherish us. And so it's gonna be a song kind of about that. I honestly believe that. I believe what you just said. I've thought about that before. I think that happened to a certain extent, you know, not we didn't lose electricity, obviously, but it happened to a certain extent when we couldn't tour and we couldn't go to venues and see concerts. The only way that we had to experience music was to make it ourselves, mm -hmm. make it in your backyard, have people come over and do house shows. And, you know, like my, my husband brought his drum kit home, put it in the basement, started doing drum covers. We taught the kids, we got a piano. We taught the kids how to play piano and we were like, all right, concerts aren't happening for a while. So let's just play music every day. And that's, that's all we had. So I love that. I can't wait to hear it. That's going to be fantastic. I'm excited. Yeah. So I'm just excited to hear your story. You know, it's funny because I feel like I know you so well, but I don't really know much about you. Mm -hmm. So I'm intrigued. I'm curious about what you'll divulge. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, let's, we'll find out. Right? Yeah. But I want to start off with like a little introduction. Okay. So do you want me to introduce you or do you want to introduce yourself? You can introduce me. It's probably good practice for you. Okay. All right. So what do you want me to focus on? Well, I mean, I guess I consider myself a songwriter, educator, community activist. I'm a producer. My current project is really around creating a space in this house where I can thrive as an artist and offer space for other artists and non-artists to come and connect with music. So I guess I'm sort of trying to create an informal space for musical experiences for all ages, something like that. You know. just said it so well. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you could just use that. Oh yeah, I don't know if I can do that better than you just did. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Today, my very first podcast guest is my good friend, Audra Kubat. We met at the Detroit Institute of Music Education during the open house. I brought my, oh gosh, she must've been three at the time. She's 10 now. Yeah, just a, a, she was a wee little bitty thing and she played on the piano and Audra was right there to show her how to do it. And then when I started working at Dime, I sought Audra out to start working with her. I had been hearing great things about 
her songwriting and her educating the way that she taught and that she, that Audra had this fantastic project where she would go into art museums and work with museum patrons to create a song around a piece of art. And I just thought that was the coolest idea I'd ever heard. So I knew that Audra was somebody I needed to know. And I am so excited to be having this conversation with you today. So thank you so much for being my very first podcast guest. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to be in this inaugural. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Smash the champagne against the boat. Ooh. You and this, yeah, beginning this journey for you. And I'm so glad that you know, I inspired you, you know, and when we met, yeah, the the museum project, um, still not quite off its feet, but have done more um, with the DIA here. That's an exciting project that I'm still kind of piloting in a couple spots. I did some actually with the Detroit Institute of Arts has an uh, inside out project where they place art out into the community like replicas. So in my neighborhood where I am in Northwest Goldberg, I ran a like six sessions over the summer where we used those pieces of art to do songwriting with people in my neighborhood. So that was really cool. Every session we created a group song kind of using the same techniques that I would in the museum. And so really beautiful way to like activate the space because the Inside Out program isn't about songwriting. It's literally they put pieces up in the neighborhood, but the spaces aren't necessarily activated by anyone. So I was like, oh my gosh, number one, I've worked with the DIA. And so I was working with Northwest Goldberg Cares, which is the nonprofit in my neighborhood that puts programs together. And we've been doing a lot of tandem work because of Detroit House of Music. And we can talk later about the house. But yeah, I came to them and I said, hey, you know, I've I've done this in the DIA with art pieces. And I think we could activate these parks that the DIA installed replicas in through this songwriting program. So we started music in the parks. Oh, cool collaboration with Detroit House of Music and then also the DIA was really excited about it because I basically like reached out to them I said hey we should be doing this you guys want to add any support and they came forward with some uh, financial support which was really great because I was kind of just volunteering my time at that point yeah so here we are talking about music and connections yeah yeah I I love that I love the connection between music that decorates time and art that decorates space. I think they're so closely woven together. And so typically I, you know, I meet with musicians who are also artists in one way or another, like one guy I know does wood carving Mm -hmm. and a, a lot of musicians that I know are art collectors. And I have this, this piece back here that you can see this colorful piece on my wall. Yeah, that is all percussion. And then it had it's from Africa and it has sand layered into it like African sand kind of textured. Yeah. And that's the tie in right there is texture. And that's, you know, that's what percussion kind of adds to Mm -hmm. songs and to this art. And I think they're they're just so closely tied together. Part of what I really like about the process that I use is we don't discuss like who painted it. We don't discuss who paid for it to be painted. Mm -hmm. And even what the artist is suggesting it means if there is a suggestion. The reason I like to use this particular way of getting into the art, and it's called VTS actually, and it's just a way of like asking questions about what you see in the art and what we can find there without 
you know, me guiding it or some professional person guiding it because art can be really intimidating for people. And I think um, this particular way of looking at art just gives everybody permission to be like, there's no right or wrong answer. It's what do you see in this piece? What do you see that makes you feel that way? And then there's a whole conversation that comes up. I'm actually using this VTS in at Boggs Elementary right now because I'm doing a, for Inside Out Literary Arts Project, I'm working in the school and we're doing a 10-week session on songwriting. And me and my partner decided to use art to inspire the songwriting portion. So we're using the visual strategies, this technique, VTS, to get, you know, like fifth graders to talk about art. Where normally they'd be like, well, I don't want to say anything because like, what if I'm, what if I'm misseeing it or I'm not right. seeing it? It's like, this is all about like, what do you see? How does it make you feel? So when you have a great facilitator doing that and bringing that out, you can get, you know, even like really, really young children to connect with art. And I think when we first met and we were talking about working together on this project, I still think it's such a valuable project and that galleries all over the country, all over the place, all over the world should have artists in residence that go in, you know, and use, you know, use music and songwriting to inspire a real connection to the art for the patron because often they're walking through a museum, they don't really like connect with the art that's, you know, has the longevity that like, once you write a piece, you know, I've had people say once they've written a piece about the Diego Rivera court, they have so many new reasons why they wanna go back now mm-hmm. and see the piece and sort of remember like, oh, remember the line that I created and, you know, or to even bringing other people and saying like, we wrote a song about this piece and, you know, these are the things that kind of came out and suddenly you're seeing just so many more ways, so many more entry points into connecting with the art. So we're still doing it. We just, we, we needed a break. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole world shut down, so we didn't really have a choice anyway. <laughs> yeah. I love what you said about art being intimidating. I think a lot of people that don't write songs probably think that songwriting is intimidating too. And I love that you are making it accessible for people, even for the students that you teach either in the elementary schools or at the college level that maybe didn't think they were songwriters. They thought I play guitar, but I only play what I learn. I don't write anything. Or they were business students that took a songwriting class with you. You kind of teach them strategies and techniques that make it less intimidating. And that's one of the things I've always loved about the effect that you have on the students when they come out of the classroom, they feel like they know what they're doing. I want to take one of your songwriting classes. (laughs) Enroll. (laughs) Maybe I'll just start showing up. Yeah, well, we're going to start doing sessions here at the house after the first of the year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to start some like monthly sessions around songwriting that have different entry points based on some will be more geared towards beginners and then more advanced song writers. But to really like start the vision of Detroit House of Music, I need to start really using the space. And it hasn't been in the place where it can be until I think after the first of the year, like the first floor will be really ready for workshops to begin and small performances. Cool. Let's talk about the house a little bit. Yeah. When did you have this vision? What was the, what was kind of like the starting point? of Detroit House of Music? Well, I've always, I used to live in Woodbridge, um, kind of near the Trumbleplex Theater. And 
I lived in a big house um, with a woman that was very open to me doing things. And I started doing this dinner and a show thing. And so we, once a month, we would like clear the whole first floor and I'd always have a guest and I would play myself. So it was like an opportunity for me to play like a show once a month also in a really intimate space because I hate bars and we can talk long time about how challenging it is for an acoustic singer songwriter singing heartfelt music to play in a bar. But um, coming back to the dinner and the shows, I was able to like really give young artists or touring artists opportunities to play in a, in a room that was very attentive. We broke bread together. It was just this great combination of like food and music. And they ended up becoming potlucks and sort of BYOB. So it's like people would just come and then we would divulge into like jam sessions at the end. But they were just so wonderful. And so going forward, and, and I also started becoming an educator when I lived there because there were kids in the neighborhood that wanted to learn. I mean, I would sit out on the porch and this was like almost 12, 15 years ago. I'd sit out on the porch and play my guitar and neighborhood kids would come up and be like, well, show us the guitar or whatever. And I was like, you know, so I started kind of teaching youth really naturally. It just kind of like started. And I was doing guitar lessons and stuff like that before that, but not really like connecting with young people, particularly around songwriting. All of that just always, I was always like, I need to create a space where I can thrive in my own space. Like I was sort of tired of, I kept on hearing the stories of like, oh, I teach guitar at so-and-so and they take half the money or, you know, just not having, like having to sort of have all this oversight over things. I was like, okay, I really love the idea of creating a space where I can have workshops, we can do small performances, we can we can allow other people in the community to come in and do like yoga or cooking or, you know, we can, I mean, you can just, do whatever feels right for your community. And so somebody that I've worked with before in, in the in the community, like had approached me about this house like four or five years ago and just saying, what would you think about turning this house into some kind of music space or whatever? And I had kind of talked to them already about this vision that I had. And I looked at the house, I was like, there's no way. It was so, <laughs> it was so over my head. It was so wrought with just, it was over the top. And so I walked away from it for like a couple of years and then they approached me again. They're like, we still have this house because they bought it with the idea. They bought a few different houses with the idea, like, let's get some artists into these neighborhoods to do cool stuff. And they approached me again and I kind of just was like, okay, if you, you know, give me the house, I will, I will start working on it and create a plan. And, and so we did some partnership for a while. The partnership has kind of changed switched gears or whatever, but I'm still sort of the vision is still there. So Detroit House of Music is in Northwest Goldberg and there is a community garden attached to it that I built over the pandemic. I thought, what is the best way to kind of come into a neighborhood? I mean, this is a neighborhood that's been really hard hit and has struggled for a really long time. It's on the cusp, um, actually Motown Museum in Hitsville is on the line of Northwest Goldberg. So it is actually in Northwest Goldberg. So if you can envision where uh, Motown Museum is, I'm close to that okay. end of the neighborhood. But the neighborhood itself, you know, has lost so many houses, so many residents that, you know, it was really riddled with a lot of crime over the years of transition and things like that. So I came into the neighborhood and thought like, well, how do I meet people and like, let them know I'm here and not feel like I'm just supplanting myself, which mm -hmm. happens so much, you know, as we watched gentrification kind of like thinking that it's like helping an area that really sort of like then displaces people. I wanted to be a part of my neighborhood. So I thought what better way than to have a garden 
and start to grow food and share it. So I started the garden and what happened is like people started stopping by and just being like, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm starting a garden and you, we're going to have tomatoes in a few months. I'd love to bring some to you, you know, kind of things like that or like stop by any time and bring a bag and grab some greens. And, you know, so I was growing like kale and tomatoes and things that were easy to pick, you know. And so I had four big boxes. I started connecting with the Garden Research Program, which is a Detroit area program that helps to share seedlings with families, but also community and community gardens. So I registered as a community garden and yeah, they helped out a lot. And yeah, so I started this community garden with the idea that eventually, hopefully people will take over more plots. It is a whole, it's a whole sort of uh, regular house lot. So oh. there's no house on it anymore. So it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, and I also planted a little bit of an orchard. So we've got some fruit trees that maybe in like a couple of years we'll have some fruit. And yeah, it kind of started working. Like people just started to connect to the place. And then of course I tell them, well, you know, I'm, I'm a musician and an artist and want to create a space where, you know, people can come and learn about music and people just got excited about it. And I was welcomed into the community with open arms. So Yay. It was sort of like, I want to write, I want to create a pamphlet that's like called like 10 steps to breaking bread with neighbors and a new, as an, as a new person in a neighborhood or something like that. And like the first thing is sort of like you do, the, you do the wave. And that was one thing I did. Every time I was outside, whatever I was doing, if a car came by, a bus came by, I would wave. I was like, yep, I wave. And then the next step was like the stop and chat. Because mm-hmm. then people get excited. Well, who's this person always waving at me? Da, da, da. So then you get the stop and chats, right? And then eventually you get invited to, you know, the barbecue, the outside, like hang out, you know, and it's like, hence I've been in at least five or six of my neighbor's houses. I've delivered food to them. I've, they've, they've come to have um, time with me in the garden. And uh, I think it's, it's a good model. I think neighborhoods, there's a lot of houses that are empty in neighborhoods where, you know, we could create like almost a, a nationwide movement of like, how do we get artists to be homeowners and also commit to, you know, maybe they take support somehow from the community or the larger community, but like with the commitment that I'm going to use part of my space to like share my work. I mean, it's just, it's another brilliant plan of mine. <laughs> As I walk down the road I remember the sound of your car As it starts in the rain So I think to myself What could there be If I just keep on walking out of town And I know someday I will Find the strength to lay down all the things I've held on to, and the stones that I've thrown, the ones thrown at me, and the days they aren't the only thing passing. You're from Detroit, right? Yeah. You grew up in Detroit, so you are local. That's legit. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag native. So let's. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about growing up in Detroit. You know, you mentioned the Motown Museum. I did not grow up here. So I'm very interested to hear your experiences growing up in Motown in Detroit as you were growing up. 
what kind of an influence did the Detroit music scene have on you becoming a songwriter? And when did you kind of know that this was a path that you were going to take? So early, early on, you know, my parents listened to a lot of music in the house, lots of great soul records, really old music too, some stuff from like the 40s and doo-wop stuff. My dad loved to sing, so he would sing in the car, we'd sing like songs together, and we had a piano. And so I would play piano by ear, just, you know, even when I was like three and four years old, I would sit at the piano and kind of just make up songs. And they kind of tried to put me in lessons, but I, I fought against it. I didn't want to go back to like, dun, 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 when I was already like kind of creating chords and stuff. So I was like, no, thank you. In hindsight, I wish I had, because, you know, when you learn to read music young, it sticks with you. It's really hard to go back. But that said, I didn't really, you know, I, I originally went to Montessori uh, schools and got a lot of support and a lot of like student-led experiences. And I was really creative and I did a lot of art and I did a lot of music. But then when I went to public schools, my mom actually was a social worker in Southfield. So I went to Southfield schools and like a lot of the creativity just like kind of got stomped out. They were like, stop tapping, stop making, so, oh no, you can't just stand up. Because I, I was so used to like, you know, having like agency over like what I was choosing to do, like coming from this sort of progressive school. And so it kind of like, it, it shook me a little bit. Like I, I was shut down a lot and actually put in special ed for a little while because of behavioral stuff. Like when I was in like fourth and fifth grade, <laughs> um, because I just was, I just got, I became out of control, I guess. I mean, I, was like, I probably was just like, you know, like running the asylum or something, getting everybody to just be crazy. It was actually just like being creative, not yeah. But yeah, so late, you know, later, as soon as I like was able to, you know, moving forward, um, kind of go out on my own. I mean, I think I was like seventeen when I first like moved away from home and moved away from my parents. I really needed like my own, my own space, and I started going to this coffee shop in Ferndale called um, Gotham City Cafe when it used to be on Woodward, and then it moved to Hundred Nine Mile. And I thought I was going to be a painter, actually, and a, like an artist. So I would like I'd go with my sketchbook, and I'd be you know, and people would be playing music at the open mic, and other people are like writing poetry and whatever. You know, it was this very like groovy kind of time, and it was probably like ninety, maybe ninety, eighty nine, ninety, ninety one, something yeah. like that, and. I was like, oh, I, I wish I always wanted to sing. I always wanted to be a singer. And I was told multiple times from friends and foes that I was not a good singer. Oh. And I mean, I used to go down and like, I would go to like a quiet place and just sing at the top of my lungs, like my country tis of the or something. For some reason, it's like, I don't know if I knew all the words to that one. And I so I was like, my country tis of the you know, <laughs> um, at the top of my lungs. But then, so I was, you know, I'd go to this coffee shop and I was like, you know, maybe I just want to sing, you know? And my friend was like, you should just go up there and sing. And I was like, well, I know this James Taylor song that I really like. And so I just went up and I sang acapella. I didn't have a guitar or anything. Wow. And I got this crazy like reaction from people that like, not, not only like, oh my God, you can sing, but like, wow, you're really good. Like you should sing. And, you know, and then me saying like, and I, I'm sure I like kind of downplayed myself. I was like, I've been told never to sing. Here I go. So I probably like kind of honeyed the pot or whatever. Like everybody was like, oh, we better tell her she's good. So she keeps singing. Um, and yeah, I had a boyfriend. He had a guitar and I went home. I think even that night I was like, show me some chords on the guitar. And he showed me how to play Friend of the Devil by oh. Grateful Dead. I'm wearing a Grateful Dead shirt right now. Just yeah. apropos, right? Yeah. Um, 
and yeah just from there i like took that song and there was like four chords in it and i like i immediately wrote like my first song using the chords and just kind of changing around and i was like wow i'm like i i got really good and i would just sit there and my fingers would just like get so they were so tender and i would just sit there and like <laughs> i didn't even know how to strum like i never strummed so like right away i was like and i think it's also because i played piano like my fingers i had a lot of dexterity already in my hands because of doing this so it was yeah. just more like i was just turning my hand and doing this now so i had i excelled really quickly on the guitar i mean i literally in like three months i was like playing decent and i i never got over that hump i'm still I'm just like, no. <laughs> it just stopped right there <laughs> But, but yeah, no, I got good quickly on the guitar. And then I started, you know, kind of going to the open mic and playing my stuff. And I just felt like, I mean, I had written poetry in high school and stuff like that. And I was in theater. I loved theater. I loved like all the like performative sort of like things, you know, I was kind of a class clown a little bit and I was a fashion whore also. <laughs> so I was always doing this weird stuff. Like I remember in high school, this was totally not popular, but I started wearing like my clothes inside out and backwards. And I was going through this sort of like mod sort of slash, not quite goth, but like dark stage where I was like wearing like high turtlenecks and like, you know, like jackets with shoulder pads. And like, it was past the eight, way past the eighties by then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I think of as like the cure or even like late talking heads. Cure, yeah, totally. Well, and the lining of skirts was usually more interesting than the outside. So I would slip it over and like have the lining showing. It was just weird. People just thought it was weird. And I'd also gone through a lot of, you know, emotional stuff as a child too. I had a relationship in my family that was abusive. It wasn't my parents, but it really affected me. And I, I went through a lot of pain over it. And when I started to sing and write songs, I found that I was writing, even if it wasn't about me, everything was about me. It was always about me. I was writing through my pain all the time. You know, I was kind of like going back and negotiating all that stuff that I'd gone through. And it was relieving. I felt like I was changing in some ways and that I was learning about my own pain sort of through this, this new avenue that I hadn't like really tried. And there was something about like singing it out, you know, that was really healing for me. And when I started to feel that way, I was like, oh, music is this other, there's so many levels of things going on. Not only like was I expressing myself, I was channeling something also from what I was experiencing I was also vibrating sound through my body, which also was like breaking up pain that I felt in my body. I was connecting with other people that were having pain. So I'd have people come to me after a song and, oh, I really felt that or like that, that made, like uplifted me or this or that. I mean, I've had people over the years send me emails that I don't even know that like some of your songs saved me. Just these really like beautiful sort of like emissions from people about what it was doing for them. And it's always kept me kind of going. You know, those moments there, it's just like, why am I doing this? I don't make any money doing this. Like, <laughs> I never seem to like get past a certain level. Why do I keep doing this? And I'm like, oh yeah, I know why. It's, it's because it's healing me and it's healing others. And it doesn't fucking matter if there's, you know, if there's like one person that's like gets something really great out of what I'm doing. I mean, hopefully it's much more than that, but yeah, you know, I don't do it for the, you know, for the money. I do it for the, for the feeling it gives me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I really relate to that. I had, you know, that's one of the things that we, I think, connected about as friends is I was also in a similar kind of abusive 
situation that wasn't my parents and my parents were very musical and wonderful and supported me throughout all of that. And yeah, same kind of thing. I was actually just listening to Shadow Boxer by Fiona Apple yesterday. And I had that thought about how singing that song and the, the way she plays the piano and the way that she emoted that song releases something in you when you're, when you're feeling like you always have to be on the defensive Mm-hmm. and you're shadow boxing everybody that comes near you don't get too close don't get too close I, I was thinking about singing that song as like a 14 year old in my room just belting it from the bottom of your gut and it I love what you said about how the vibrations like shook something out of you I think singing is a very physical activity that sounds obvious but it it comes from the bottom of your soul mm-hmm. and it radiates all the way up through the top of your head and it hits everything in between, you know, like the best singers are singing out of their fingertips. And I think that's something that is really powerful. The singers that keep doing it, do it with their whole entire bodies like that their and their whole entire soul. And so I love everything you just said, but I have a question. Sure. My question is, what songs did you grow up listening to that did that for you? Like, is there a song that comes to mind that you used to sing that wasn't your own that shook something loose for you? Yeah. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of different songs I think that I could talk about. One that I was surprised and it happened a little bit later in my musical journey was Wild is the Wind by Nina Simone. Oh, I don't know that one. It's... It's just this epic song. Like she howls in this song and her voice is so like guttural also. Yeah. But I just remember that feeling of singing that song. Another one I'd say is Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. Like with one of those songs that like just kind of pulled energy out of my body, you know, just like sort of, I could feel it moving through me. Head like a hole. Is that like... Why am I thinking that song? Uh, I mean, when when Teen Spirit came out, that was another one where it's just my whole body just lost it when I was listening to it. And I'm just like screaming. I had no idea even what the words were for like ever. Just it was just like, you know, like I'm like, I don't know what he's saying, but I fucking like it. And it's making me feel relief and release um rage against the machines another group that some of those songs just did that for me mm-hmm. um, there's not a lot of like laid back songs that i think of that do that same thing i mean when i first heard alanis morissette i can't remember what the very first one was it was like the when she's in the desert i remember yeah. hearing also queens another one bites the dust oh yeah another one bites the dust yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's just like wanting to just sort of let loose and it had that like sort of heartbeat in it in the rhythm mm-hmm. <laughs> I think when I hear celebrate good times I kind of lose my mind too there's a party going on right here you know and I just kind of like celebrate good time I think when maybe it was when Trump got like voted out I actually like went out with my boom box on my street because <laughs> my neighbors were kind of coming everybody was just sort of like milling around the next day like is this finally, did this happen? You know, it's like, I, I'm not a huge Biden fan. I wanted Bernie. And I feel like people, they would, they just like tried to destroy him. And they were so afraid of any anything that was going to actually change people's lives and would affect theirs. They were like, no, 
But anyway, so we're out on the street and I'm playing that and like my neighbors are kind of coming out and we're just like dancing and it was such a moment. That's another one, another song that just kind of moves me. I love that. I, I love the way that music brings people together like that. And it doesn't matter when or how long ago that song was written. It's still relevant. Yeah. I was thinking that too about Killing in the Name of By Rage Against the Machine. I've been exploring what my essential songs are, the Andalisi project. Right. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I questioned, I was like, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me is so internal to my DNA from when I was like a teenager, a young teenager. Mm -hmm. I think that has to be one of my essential songs, (laughs) even though I haven't listened to Rage Against the Machine. I saw him at Lollapalooza in 2007 and haven't listened since, you know, but I'm pretty sure that Rage Against the Machine is like built into my DNA. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't have a lot of quiet songs either. Yeah, well, maybe, yeah, maybe you got to pull it up and listen to it. Um, yeah. Coming up here, maybe driving in the car is always a good oh. place to listen to Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. I think it's interesting that you ended up writing kind of mellow, quiet songs, even though it doesn't sound like you listened to very many of them. Not really. I mean, Joni Mitchell was, you know, is my kind of hero songwriter. And I didn't mention her because in some ways her songs are really... They're not easy songs to sing along to. Mm-hmm. For me, they're very like much about listening and kind of coming into like a meditative or quiet or quieter space. So they're not songs that feel like they celebrate something within me necessarily. Even though when I hear them, I'm like very touched and I can cry and get really introspective. But she doesn't write songs that are like sing songs, you know, like sing along songs. She's, I mean, they're very melodically really complicated songs. So yeah, and I. I think I ended up writing in that vein because I had so much to say in my songs and I was really like kind of exploring the the sort of edges of what songwriting is. And so right away when I was writing songs, kind of wrote songs that were a little cryptic and strange and like the chords were always a little bit weird. I didn't start writing songs that were more accessible, I think, until maybe my last like three albums. So my first albums, I think, are a little bit like sort of strange, a lot of different tunings. I was inspired by Joni's tunings and just less accessible. And then I was sort of like, are my songs not accessible? And then I kind of wrote a few songs like Take This Heart, which is just very like, you know, almost it's kind of like a sing-along song. And it's really about just more hopeful love and, you know, easy melody, easy chord progression. I was like, why can't you just write a simple song, Audra? So then I wrote a bunch of like simple songs and now I'm kind of like going back to like, ah, I just, you know, stop, stop trying to like sort of police my own songs and kind of, you know, just write yeah. what is your songwriting process? What do you usually do first? The lyrics or the melody? How does it usually come together for you? Yeah. Occasionally I come up with a, some lines first, but not very often. Like if I'm in the car singing, I might come up with a, like a really cool melody line with a word and I'm like, okay, you got to record this right now. Yeah. I don't always come back to those. And it's harder to go at it that way because it's harder to kind of come up with music to support a melody line than the other way around because a melody line can have a lot of different kinds of chords underneath it. Whereas if you start with the chords, it's kind of suggesting melody to you already. And so it's kind of easier to write that way. And I find I start that way a lot where I'm just playing guitar and I'm something kind of hits and maybe I even mumble like some melody like kind of comes to me. And then I might kind of like land on a couple words. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. What could I 
you know, how, what is the song telling me? You know, what is the song doing? I love that. But I, but I also lately, I have written some songs that started from, started from words um, and melody together. Cause I, I usually don't just go, Oh, I'm going to write this thing down. I'm just usually more like, Oh, la, 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 da, 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 da. Like walking down the street. Sunny day, sunny day, sunny day. Oh, sunny day. It's a sunny day. And I'll go off for like a half hour and just, (laughs) and then I'll go, Oh, that one thing was kind of fun. What was that? You know? Yeah. I'm all over the place. When I teach, I teach a lot of different techniques and ways to get to ideas you know, using an outline to create a song, creating story songs or using metaphors more and all these different things. It's like, I don't use them myself that much because a lot of stuff is always coming to me. When I do give an assignment like that, I always do it myself. And I have written songs while teaching because I've, I've said, well, and I'm going to go home and write the song too, based on this prompt. (laughs) So not, you know, because I like them to see like, okay, what is a working songwriter what would they do with this idea? And, you know, I've had some people say, well, don't you think that's intimidating for like a student? And I was like, well, I think it should, it should be a little intimidating for them to, to know that, okay, my instructor is also going to be doing this. And wow, there's this probably going to be, you know, whatever they're going to think. And it's like, but I think it also helps them aspire to like going deeper when they know that there's going to be some high level stuff coming in for this exercise. So let's like step it up. Yeah. I like to push them, you know, a little bit. Yeah. I like that. I watched the Hitsville Motown documentary and they were talking about the listening sessions when everybody would come back together after a recording week or a recording month at Motown and everybody would play what they had been working on, even Smokey, you know, everybody's playing and you have to hear what the other people are working on. And they talked about how competition drives creativity. And I don't necessarily like the word competition. They talked about it kind of specifically in regards to Motown. But I do think that you have to kind of set the example. And I did the same thing in my classes. You know, I would show them, you're going to write a business plan. Here's a professional completed business plan. This is what I expect it to look like. Right. Now I'm going to teach you how to do it. Yeah, for sure. That's the plan, right? So there's one song in particular that I want to talk about you having written, and I think it was on The Sliver and the Salve. So that was the one that you performed at the DIA that I I came and saw, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You come to the the last one in November 2019? Yeah, it must have been because then yeah. everything yeah. shut down right after that. That was the album, yeah. That I yeah. and I didn't get a tour or anything with it. It was just, ah, yeah. It was, yeah. And I think it's one of my better, al- you know, I don't know. I think it's a good album. Yeah, I think it was a fantastic album. So let's talk about the song from that album that I one of the standout songs, "Oh Mother," because you mentioned that you know you're community activist and you've mentioned the environment a couple times, and I I want to talk about the process of writing that song and what kinds of things you drew inspiration from when you were specifically writing that song. Yeah. How did that song, I I wrote that song and like, I mean, I finished it. I edited it for a few weeks before I finished it, finished it. But I wrote most of those verses, like just, I sat down and I just wrote it. I was like, so I was so disappointed and, and just like angry. And I was just like thinking about, you know, I often think about the earth as the ultimate mother, 
Yeah. That's what I love about it. How can we be like not caring for you? You have done everything for us and you, you ask for so little, really. It's like, you just basically ask us to like treat you with respect the way that we want to be treated. And so I wanted to sort of personify the earth in this way by representing her as a person, as a human, and not only just a human, but a mother, you know, as a way to kind of build compassion, as a way for people to think about her as like, what if you were like setting your mother on fire? Yeah. You were like pouring poison into your mother's water. I wanted it to be inspiring, but also like, I wanted it to be like, hey, like, uh, you know, and yeah, so I mean, the structure, you know, is really kind of simple, you know, as far as the the guitar part is really kind of repetitive. It doesn't like do that much changing. But I really liked this idea of starting the chorus with more of the, the hook and the end of the chorus. And then the middle of the chorus actually changes every time. So it's mm-hmm. like, I trust in the world you have given to us. You know, the first ones, I will fight with my bones and my fists if I must. And the next one's like fingers and nails. And, the, you know, I'll fight with my songs and my words, my heart and my mind. I didn't want to get bogged down by a chorus that was limiting. And I think it is a talent to do it because, you you know, it's like because of that, it's not a very good sing-along song, which I kind of knew that going into is like, if you don't make the chorus the same every time, people ain't going to sing. Yeah. Um, But I thought I made enough of it the same that it would still kind of resonate and that you could still kind of grab onto that. You know, I trust in the world, you know, and even the choir that I had, they sing these parts that are really easy to sing. And I thought that that was another way to kind of invite people into singing along. Cause it's a little bit of a long song. It's got a lot of verses in it. Yeah. I, I love that. I love that song. I love the earth. I love that you personified the earth. I thought that was so incredibly powerful every time that I've heard it and then seeing it live. I'm, I'm pretty sure I cried. That was pretty, Oh, having that. Yeah. Stage and having like that full band playing that song and I mean I, I mean I could cry right now just thinking about like the that room the energy yeah. like there were like people everywhere they like I you know I remember them telling me after like they were just blown away like they had no idea it was gonna to bring that many people there were like people like they had to keep taking people off the walls that were like leaning on art <laughs> there was people in the other room it was just an amazing moment. Yeah. And, and in, that, in that song, you know, I like that I'm like talking to her. You know, there's these moments where it's like, I'll study your body, hold space in your name. Like I'm talking to her directly. Every time I f- sing it, I'm able to get to that place again where I'm on the verge of tears. And, and I'm so hopeful that I'm doing like, ideally you're doing that for people because, you know, music can change the world in some ways, you know, it can, in, it can inspire people, even just one person inspire them to, to make a change. So I want when people are singing it to feel like they're making a pledge to the earth, mm. you know, to, the, to the mother. Oh, mother of light, mother of day, You wait for the words that we promise to say We stand in your shadow but must sit by your side To hear your song in the winds blown wild And I trust in the world you have given to us I 
will fight with my bones and my fists if I must To shatter the walls they put up with fear I will break all the rules just to keep her here You had mentioned to me one time, or maybe it was in a songwriting workshop, that you want to hear a progression and you want to hear a change from the beginning of the song to the end of the song because you're taking somebody through a story Mm -hmm. and the main character is changing. And that's always stuck with me, you know, now as I'm working with young emerging artists and they're playing their new songs for me, I constantly think about that element of make sure that the main character of this story goes through some sort of transformation Mm -hmm. from beginning to end, because you're, you have three minutes or four minutes to tell a story and what's happening. What, what's the difference between the beginning and the end? And why would I listen to the end? Why would I sit through the whole thing? Yeah. If nothing happens, you know, right. Right. Changes. Yeah. And, Sometimes you can make nothing changing about something too. There can be a point to be made that if your character isn't changing, that there's something to be said about that, but then say that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I felt that in that album in particular, I felt like there was a lot of transformation happening in all those songs. Yeah. I love your songwriting, but let's talk about business for a minute. Everybody's favorite topic. So in your 20 years of experience in the art of creating songs, what sort of business problems have you come up against? Yeah, (laughs) lots of them. I'm curious if you have specific experiences with business lessons that maybe you wish you had learned or something you wish you had known at the beginning. Yeah, that's a complicated thing to think about. You know, like when I break them down, it's like, I have access to recording. People have offered to record me and I've worked with different producers and made deals with them to record. I know how to publish my work. I know my way around that, those logistics. It's more around like how part of me feels like the world just is not that interested in what what I'm doing. Mm. Um, And so I get kind of like bogged down by that. I will say like when people get to experience my work, particularly in person, I have great experiences from that. And like people that just become a fan, like first time I'm a fan, I want to, you know, getting to new people is near impossible. And I'm at a place in my career now where touring just isn't as possible as it was when I was younger and able to like sleep in the car and Mm -hmm. take the scraps and figure out I was just way more flexible with the idea that like, I'm going to go out and tour and there may be like five people there. I might not get paid, you know, like, I was willing to kind of take all the slings and arrows of that. Yeah. Um, Did you do that? I did. I went on different tours that I had set up myself in my late 20s and early 30s. And, you know, went back and forth to New York, had stopped in all the places along the way, played in Akron. Like, you know, I didn't do a lot on the West Coast, but I have played there. It just, it costs so much money to do. It's like, I was never in a place where I could afford to really take enough time to do it. I see examples of incredible artists, like Dixon's a really good example, Dixon Violin. They sort of figure out, like, they do these spoke tours where they kind of just, they'll go as far as it takes to go to like a weekend and then they come back home and then doop, doop, doop. And hence now he's like full-time and he's been doing this for for years now, but now he pretty much is full-time plays. The pandemic was a little challenging for him, but 
and I've spe- seen his spreadsheets. Like we've talked about like, well, you we could do that. So like, I'm like, I don't, I just don't have, I go, I got the fucking talent. I don't want to do all this other stuff. And then I go, well, maybe I don't have the talent and nobody wants to hear me. So Aww. I go with the back and forth of like this depression that comes in from like, you know, how much can I do by myself? And then I've like started and stopped and with other working with other people and just always feeling like, how are we going to afford to do it? The ideas are all great, but there's no money there unless I'm working full time. And then there's no touring if I'm working full time. And so like this circle just tends to just bury me all the time. And then I'm like, well, I'll build this house and everybody will fucking come to me and I can play music and get old. And like, if you want to hear my music, you will find me and you will come and Am I okay with refocusing in on my local community and like what I can do in this setting and just say, fuck the world. Like, I don't have access to you. I don't know how to, I'm not going to stand on my head like a monkey and flip around so you can like watch my Instagram and I'll show you all my parts. And like, I don't have the energy that I used to have. And so I, I don't know what my lesson is or what I would say to other people. Oh, you said it. I certainly could have written like more poppy songs. Like I help kids write them all the time. <laughs> I come up with the best fucking hooks. Let me tell you. But like I don't want to promote the kind of writing that is like eight people sitting around a table and I'm going to come up with like this one awesome part and get like a tiny cut of the song. It's like, that's not fulfilling for me. And I'm sad that the industry is the way that it is, but I don't think little old me is going to change it. And I have to write songs because that is what I do. So I'm in a lurch, you know. I thought that everything that you just said is so fantastic and important to what music actually is and what it actually does for people is that it is a community activity. You said, I'm going to build this house and people are going to come to me. And that's what the most successful people of all time did and do they're building the house and people are coming to them. It just happens to be right now because of the internet and everything, the house is really big Mm -hmm. and the house is like virtual. You know, it's the metaverse, Mm -hmm. which is like the buzzword of the week. Right, right. And I, I don't think that's a sustainable lifestyle choice for so many different reasons. To bring it back around full circle to your apocalyptic punk song, I, I just, I think that musicians will and do and are community centers and that what you're doing is the whole point. Yeah. Why should we have to go out? You know, Detroit has been a music hub for many years and I'm very for creating a local economy and a local community that you know, just the way they want to buy their artisan beers and artisan cheese, their Detroit shirts and all that fucking shit. Well, we have to do that with our artists so that we keep our artists here and local companies should be using local jingles. We're just so focused on like, what is hip in this, this meta world, what's globally popular or what's nationally popular that like, you know, those people, yeah, like they're, they're great, but they could also be other people. Like, I, I don't think that the ones that are have supposedly made it are the it thing. I think they have had the right situation. They had the right money. They had the right support. If you look at the history of a lot of the artists that are on 
in these big places and making the bigger splash, they are related to someone that have so much family already connected in the industry that they're in. So it's like to aspire to that is like, it's near impossible, crushing. And what happens is we either lose artists to like LA or New York, they get crushed there anyway, because they go out with no real support. Like, no, you should stay here and let's build it up here. But we have to have more infrastructure for those artists to want to stay. And that's why I want to cut out that middle person that, you know, wants to charge me to go give lessons, take half the money. It's like, what? Artists can come here to my house and give lessons and I won't charge, you know, I'll charge them enough to just keep the light on. That's great. Why are we, why are we doing that? Yeah. Are you going to have a studio in the house? Oh yeah. The basement eventually. I mean that these are like five-year plans. You know what I mean? Some of it is really because the house just needs still so much. The bigger idea is to model for other neighborhoods in Detroit, how you could have a house that is centered around art and you could educate informally from your house. We've already lost so many music programs in the schools. Why can't there be a house in a neighborhood that helps supplement that? And then also creates longevity and money for an artist. I actually want to create a whole program about teaching artists how to become teaching artists and like capitalize on their skills. We have all these great working artists that I would love. I want to bring here to do workshop like, you know, Sean Blackman, come here and tell young people about what you do and let's pay you money to do it. You know, all all these artists, so many of them could be sharing their craft and getting more support on the educational side. And because we don't make that much money really doing gigs occasionally. Yeah. Like, you know, and Gia kind knows how to pay. I always like to call her out because it's like, she just always gets me paid. <laughs> Who is that? So her name's Angia Kai. She's a real advocate for artists and she works with like Noel Knight and, you know, and there's more money there, but like a lot of places don't want to pay artists either. You know, it's like, they don't want to, they don't want to shovel out the money. And then, you know, artists also are desperate to play. Yeah. So they have this sort of cycle and circle that um, does not, you know, I mean, I had posted like a couple of weeks ago. Could you just imagine a day without art in your life? You can't because it's impossible. Because from the art on your wall, to the nail art on your fingers, to the jingle that goes along with so-and-so and and this and that. It's like, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. But like somehow this form has been so devalued. It's really, it's, it's really sad, you know, like. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. I try to read this book written by an economist. His name is Alan Kruger and he was Obama's chief economist during the recession And he was really into the music scene. He's not with us anymore. Uh, He passed away, but he wrote this book called Rockonomics. And every time I pick it up, it's, it's depressing. It's depressing about how little money anybody puts into the music economy. The film industry and the book industry and the art industry are billions and billions of dollars. Oh, and video games billions of dollars. Video games would not exist without music, period. Try to play Tony Hawk without a Goldfinger song or a Rancid song. It's not going to be fun. It's not going to be the same. Yeah. Or watch, you know, The Hobbit without a soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't know what the answer is. And, you know, Dr. Kruger wrote this book, asked a lot of questions. How do we improve the economy of the music business? And then he died. So now we don't have any answers. So, you know, it, it charges me to help 
come up with these answers and figure out how do we increase the value. I honestly think that the value is so high that people think that music is priceless. And so they shouldn't, they don't need to pay for it anyway. Oh, I could never put a price on that music. So since I don't know, I'll just pay nothing. (laughs) Like $10 is good. (laughs) We can help you do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you, I did some math too. I made a post too. The average person, not musician, average person listens to 18 hours of music a week, which turns out to be, I think, 78 hours a month. And if they're paying $9.99 for one streaming service, that means that they're paying 13 cents an hour. And so if they're listening to three or four minute songs, they're paying less than one penny per song. And that just is is the artist getting of that penny. Right. Yeah. Like we know like 0.0004, you know, because it has to be split so many different ways. But what, what's, if I said to you, you can never listen to that song again, unless you give me how much money, how much money would you give me to listen to your favorite song Mm -hmm. for the rest of your life? You know? And, and like, I don't think people have an answer. I don't think that they could even fathom that. And it's but, too bad that there isn't a correlation between what you're streaming and who's getting paid for it also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, streaming, it's very, it's confusing. The, the money breakdown is really like kind of weird. Yeah. And what I'm kind of interested in too is like, why can't local musicians be like local heroes? You know, like, yeah, I love that when you think of, you know, somebody local that's doing something great and you're like, oh man, that's our Detroit, like, you know, uh, yeah. like look at them. And I think there's something really, cool about that but like kids and adults and people that listen to music it's like what's nationally popular they've been conditioned to kind of think well that's the thing and it's like why can't we have our own regional stars yeah Those it used the- to be that way because we have so- we have great rappers we have great r&b artists mm-hmm. like i don't know if it means like detroit needs their own streaming service or like how do we make this hip like i said like people want to buy their made in detroit shirts but they really don't want to support detroit not really you know they they want to buy the, the local greens you know from their little farmer guy or gal you know but there's something that stops like when it comes to certain things yeah. where it's like no oh, it has to be and we have to make this popular in some way it's like well how do we make detroit music popular I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking the question. No, yeah, I don't know either. One of the things that I would really like there to be are, you know, on Spotify, you can go on Spotify and you can search for, you know, Ben Howard and you can pull up, this is Ben Howard. And it's going to have a list of all his songs and they'll be in vague order of how popular they are. I want it to be, this is Detroit. This is Nashville. This is Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, and I want to hear what's going on there or a serious channel, or any kind of local radio that I could get to from where I am now, because I'm curious. People I've never even heard too. Yeah. Probably on Spotify, but yeah, like to be able to sort of, yeah, like anchor them together so that you could have a whole Detroit channel that's non-genre specific. Yeah. And there are playlists, like there's one, somebody made one a 313 playlist or something, but they're not easily accessible. They're not easy to find and they're not Spotify promoted. So then they fall way to the bottom. Running it. Do they know all the Detroit, you know, like right. they have enough variety on there to sort of showcase all Detroit genres, right. you know, I would love to listen 
to everybody that's making music out of Austin, Texas right now. I'm just curious. Yeah. You know, what's going on in Santa Fe? Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Right. Boulder, Colorado. I mean, there's I, certainly there's a need for, I think, a platform that you could do that with, where you could target an area. And then for like a week, you could just like listen to people from fucking Timbuktu. Where the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, oh, these are the people that like are local there. And then as an artist that might be touring, it's like, okay, I know all these folks. I've been listening to all these folk musicians in Austin. I'm going to yeah. start reaching out to like the, some of them and tell them I'm, you know, want to come down and tour. Like, hey, come to Detroit and play, you know, yeah. like, those connections. you know me do you recognize my face lately I don't feel much like talking about it maybe I've got nothing to say if I pretend to be an angel would you sit here by my side Stay until the morning light Hold my hand and tell me pretty little lies And I know I can't keep holding on To the way things used to be But can't there just be one small piece Of those good old days that I can keep I can keep. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you had fun. I did. I had a great time. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited to be on this, this ship with you. Yay. You're the best. You're the best. Is there anything else that you want to add? Anything you want to promote? Uh, Detroit House of Music will be happy to take any donations, instrument-wise or financial support and or volunteers. We do have a Facebook page, Detroit House of Music Facebook page, and an Instagram, so you can follow us and keep track of our progress. And I announce like work days and things like that through there. I haven't set up an actual donation thing, but you can always send money and ask me how to do that and things like that. I just got asked to play at a holiday show at the Ark, which I'm kind of excited about. Finally, the ARC is going to have me back. It's time. Yay. Yeah, really just not much. Just keep writing music if you're out there doing your craft. And I'd love to talk more to anybody that's interested in songwriting. We're going to start some sessions up here next year. So keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, love. I will talk to you soon. Okay. Love you. Take care. Love you too. Bye. Bye. The sculpted and braved gray glory parade hollow men disgracing pedestals traitors of their time oh say can you see by the dawn's early light the evidence is indisputable the golden age which once gleamed is now tearing at the scene and the stars and stripes are unraveling Monuments built to stand for We can no longer
sacred mothers. America is coming for our sons with AR-15s. How many crosses shall we burn? 50 years after Detroit and Newark set fire to racial inequality. How many die before we erupt? Our children blood lava spilling on concrete jungle streets. How many prayer mats face east and pray five times a day for relief? for sanctuary, for peace. I watch my son's arms grow longer. I listen to his mind strengthen his pride, push past America. Be the fingers that pull, the pen that holds. This faulty union must be ground down so we can start anew. And the truths we hold dear are yet to be known. Till freedom rings for all, there can be none. And the golden age, which once gleamed, is now tearing at the seams. Tearing at the seams. And the stars and stripes stripes are unraveling. So we'll take to the streets. Take to the streets. We will not retreat. We will not retreat. Silence becomes victories, beckoning. Silence is victory.
This episode of When Songs Mean Business is a production of Steph Belcher Business Management, LLC. This episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Stephanie Belcher. Thank you to Audra Kubat for providing the interview and the music. For more information on Audra, check out audrakubatmusic.com. Please follow us on Instagram at When Songs Mean Business and join our Facebook group, When Songs Mean Business. Stay tuned for details about a new business management workshop called Level Up Your Business beginning January 3rd. Thanks again to everybody for listening and take care.